Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Keller, and today I have the pleasure of introducing my guest, Gina Bennett. She's a former member of CIA's Senior Analytics Service and is a seasoned counterterrorism specialist who authored the earliest warnings of some of today's terrorist trends, including the 93 report that warned of growing danger of Osama bin Laden and the movement he was creating. She is currently an adjunct professor Professor at Georgetown and George Washington Universities. She's an honorary advisor at Girls Security, one of my favorite organizations, and she's the author of National Security Mom. So Gina, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Let's dive right in. I, I read something online, very funny, how it's a story about how you match the birthday of each child by the adversaries that you were actually pursuing at the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, my poor kids, I'm sure I am scarring them for life. But now that they're older, I think, you know, they take it in stride. It just seemed that whenever there was chaos at work, it was also around the same time that there was the chaos of a new baby. Anyone who's had more than one kid or even just one, like each time is total chaos at home. My first son was born three days before the 1993 World Trade Center attack. And I had him by C-section, so I was in the hospital for quite a few days. He was very early, so they weren't keeping him there for a little bit longer. And it was while I was in the hospital bed that I found out about the attack. And I had been, you know, working with a number of folks at the FBI and the Department of State to look into that network that ultimately we determined facilitated that attack. So it was a traumatic. I I got a call while I was in the hospital bed. (laughs) And then my second son, actually, I link him to Cobar Towers bombing in 1996 because we were working to figure out who had conducted that attack. And there were a lot of suspects at the time. It was a pretty lengthy investigation. And I, I ended up first going into early labor with him. And then they were able to stop that. But eventually I had him in July of 96. So it was, you know, that time frame. And then my poor third daughter was born just before the August 1998 Africa embassy bombings. So she came into work with me quite a bit. But apparently she was pretty popular because every time I would leave the building, people would say, oh, you're the mother. Because my boss would like pick her up and walk her around and she would go to lots of meetings without me. So hopefully she was good. She does keep secrets from me now, though. And um, my fourth child, I was actually pregnant during 9-11, you know, early months with him. And so he's really all of 9-11, if not for the same reasons that the rest of the world, I just associate with vomiting and being ill, <laughs> darkness, you know. Finally, my my youngest, who is going to be 18 in January, it was really Fallujah and what had occurred in Iraq that so much of it was what was happening with the Zarqawi attacks in Iraq that because I was pregnant with her and having her, I associate her with just all of that. And it was 
having her was my way out really <laughs> to escape trying to deal with the growing terrorism in Iraq at that time. So yeah, not the best way to remember your kids, but luckily they all have a great Python-esque sense of humor. And so they just roll with it with me rather than hopefully they don't accuse me of... <laughs> of being some kind of evil mother, but we'll see. I guess time will tell. I'm a new mother myself. And so sort of relating the chaos at home and I have one, but like you said, one is enough. Just experiencing that new chaos in your personal life. And I mean, now, especially after the pandemic and then, you know, with bringing your kids into work, it's just, it's all so fluid that I love that you do that. You can tell your kids that somebody loves it. My point, just being a woman in um, the traditional sort of by Hollywood, the man's role, even though women have really been critical to the intelligence field since the earlier times of OSS, let's talk about how you have sort of tried to break those perceptions. Not without standing on the shoulders of a lot of other giants. You know, the women, as you pointed out, OSS and then early CIA, and even 20 years before I got there, were always brave and courageous and bucking the system, obviously at great cost to themselves. You know, they were considered emotional and just all of the stereotypes that, that we know from, you know, the 40s, the 50s into the 60s and, and beyond, really. We're still fighting them. I had a lot of role models in that sense, you know, women who were just extraordinary. I think since counterterrorism was really what I got started in and remained in, there was definitely a default to problem crush. You know, I mean, we have a hammer, so here's a nail. It's that very sort of act, react, terrorists are, are bad, so we just get rid of the terrorists. That whole default to, you know, seeing it as violence, counterviolence, which of course is a huge element of terrorism and counterterrorism, you know, any kind of political violence. Being able to step back and say, you know, wait a minute, there are factors, there are myriad factors that are part of this. As we now know today, we've studied much more deeply the radicalization process and all of its various contexts. That wasn't, didn't seem to really be the thing we did back, you know, 30 some years ago. So I think being a woman and asking questions about why do we do it this way was probably the hardest part. And I'll be honest with you, it still is pretty hard because, you know, we're dealing with conventional wisdom that's been around for millennia. And to step back and say, you know, but why are we doing this way? It obviously comes across as criticism. People don't like to be criticized rather than, hey, why are we doing it this way? Because if we can answer those questions, we may find today there are other ways of addressing this problem that have better long-term enduring impact. I think where it may have been easier in my generation as an analyst is analysts are literally paid to think, you know, that is our expertise. We're supposed to challenge the conventional wisdom. We're supposed to use, you know, alternative scenario generations and things like this. So that's where I think, especially the women in counterterrorism analysis were somewhat luckier. So I think for counterterrorism analysts, being able to really stop and ask the question, you know, why do we do it like this? Why is this happening? And maybe we need to blow up the problem a bit and make it bigger before we try to solve it. And I, you know, that's, that remains, I think, very difficult. You know, asking questions about root causes or factors that drive political violence and terrorism is always a 
sensitive topic, no matter whether you're male, female, or, you know, anything in between. The issue is always, well, we do it this way. And so this is the patriotic way of doing it. And it, it comes across sometimes as being soft on terrorism or appearing to be apologetic, even unpatriotic, rather than, you know, no good idea suffers from challenge. So why don't we challenge it all? I think particularly for women, given the stereotype, more emotional, maybe being too compassionate and just soft in general, it ends up hurting us, I think, more when we challenge these very hunter norms in national security, you know, kill, be killed kind of view of national security in general. Well said. And I think challenging those norms is healthy. I think it shows healthiness and that we're willing to ask those questions. I hope so, because challenge is what makes us better. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, speaking of challenges that, that that you've experienced, I did read that you briefed Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice while in labor. I'd love to hear more about that experience, but I also want to hear if you think the culture of the intelligence community has has shifted in favor of working mothers. The experience of briefing Condoleezza Rice while she was the National Security Advisor while I was in labor with my fifth child is highly unusual. It's not something that I would hold up as a good example of behavior, nor was it demanded or expected of me. So I don't want it to like sound as if, oh my God, if you work at the CIA, this is going to be what happens to you. That's not the case. I mean, number one, by the time I had my fifth child, I knew that my labors lasted a really long time. So I happened to be at work in the morning when my contractions first started. And again, I felt at that point after five children, I was pretty much an expert at this and I knew my body and I knew how it handled the labor process. So we had a scheduled meeting. Miss Rice and Mr. Hadley were coming over and there was a, you know, a team of people who were going to be briefing them on the latest events and things that were going on in Iraq at the time. My contractions were about 20 minutes apart. They were not incredibly painful at all at that point. So I mentioned it <laughs> to my boss, who then left it smartly up to me. So I, I went ahead and joined the briefing team. And when I got up there, we strategized that the best thing for me would be to sit at the end of the table, you know, on the other side of the White House team. Because then when it wasn't my turn to talk, I could just kind of turn away and do my breathing as I needed to. And again, I was only having contractions every 20 minutes, so it wasn't really that big of a deal. I didn't have the baby for another two days because my labors are really, really long. And that's not even my longest one. So it's definitely an anomaly. I've actually been at work after my water is broken too. So you know, I have the tendency maybe to be oblivious to the fact that I'm pregnant there at the very end. But I, you know, in general, I feel what I experienced, you know, now that I'm retired, it's, a, it's, I can say this very genuinely. I feel I experienced when I was at the agency, incredible support for all of my different family situations. You know, I had one point where I needed to take a little time for some elder care. And, you know, I think because especially in counterterrorism, you know, after the Africa embassy bombings, and of course, after 9-11, you know, you're there 100%. You know, you're there for the mission. You're dedicated and committed. And I think the organization tries to take care of its people, you know, in exchange for that commitment. So a lot of that was by my choice. But when it came to needing to take a break, you know, getting back involved, um, I think there was a really good support system. And I also feel 
you know, over the course of the 30 years plus, that that is getting even better. And not just for women returning after maternity leave, but for everybody returning after some kind of rotation or time off or whatever it might be, so that you don't feel like you have to restart. That being said, you know, there's still no way around the fact that women have children. And, you know, you could you know, where the system in general, and this isn't just the IC, it's just in general, you know, you could legitimately not have the breadth or the time on a specific job, you know, therefore the experience required for the next level up or the next promotion or the next level of responsibility. Because someone like me, you're going to see maybe seven years of, you know, being pregnant and nursing and so therefore not able to travel, you know, where travel was involved in your job, maybe not able to work full time. So you couldn't take on the responsibilities or the roles that would just add to your experience in a way that it would for others. And so you can objectively not look as qualified. But what's frustrating is that there is no accounting for the skill sets and the expertise you learn and you acquire from being a parent, from being the mother, the caretaker, the person who actually has to bear all of that, the amount of fortitude, patience, extraordinary strategic patience and planning that goes into being, you know, producing a human being and making sure the human being stays alive and nurturing it those first few months, especially. Yet, that is so often the the skill sets that I learned from being the mother of multiple children at the same time who required lots of different stuff all at once. And there was no way of turning it into a hierarchical task list. Those skill sets were never looked at as part of what made me promotable. And yet I think they're the skills that I tapped the most in being effective and successful at my job. I really just think the workforce in general needs to catch up to that and just recalibrate because I would venture to say that a lot of dads, you know, single dads, dads who are extremely engaged in the caretaking process would say the same. Absolutely. And a couple of points I wanted to note here. I have heard from quite a few people that have been at the agency long term. It was a very supportive organization. And I'm glad to hear that you included, in addition to maternity leave, other things like elder care. That's a really important factor when folks are trying to decide where they want to support in the national security mission. And it's a really interesting and I think inherent recruiting issue. Like you said, all of these skill sets that parents, single parents first parents are learning, and not to mention the physical toll of creating a human being that you endure, are not looked at. And I think that, you know, recruiters and companies may be more inclined to accept that experience and acknowledge that experience. And perhaps, you know, the government or folks that are supporting on the acquisition side may not agree. But I'm really appreciative of you noting that within the intelligence community, for sure. Just to put a final point on it, you know, when you look at there's a lot of news articles today about the costs of childcare, and why is it someone who is 
taking care of other people's children in a daycare facility or in a preschool, they have a resume. They're able to put all of those skill sets on their resume, but the person who's at home not being paid for it is completely dismissed. It's just completely unfair. It's not in the least bit ethical or appropriate. It makes no logical sense. So just because the work is unpaid does not make it of equal value. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. So I, I did want to touch on one thing that has been in the headlines is the IC's diversity recruitment problem. And so I did want to note girls security. I know I mentioned it in your intro, but I, I want to talk about how girls security is helping to bridge that gap. How can we make national security careers more relatable to the average person and in addition, make it more attractive to minorities and other groups? Yeah, absolutely. It's a real challenge, but I think it, I think there are two very fundamental ways of going about it. The first is recognizing that for minorities, including gender minorities and women, young girls, everything that they experience in their lives, you know, for girls, from the time they're like four or five, they recognize that they are more vulnerable in a physical security sense. And that is something that sticks with them and continues to build throughout their lives. That understanding of security or insecurity and the how much control they have over it or not, and then their choices and the agency they have with regard to taking care of themselves or seeking help or just being resilient, you know, strategic in their outlook building their own self-esteem, all of those things, perceptions, experiences, and skills that you build because of those experiences. So whether or not you're an excluded population at your school because you're a minority, any anything like this, you are experiencing security and insecurity and frankly, justice and injustice differently than the default, especially the default in the United States, which is still very much the white male European centric, you know, origins of all of our law and institutions and practices. If you are, then guess what? You have more value add to contribute to the building of the, the expanding of our national security, our understanding of threats, our understanding of the international or the global security environment than the default. The default we got covered. Right. It's all those additional perspectives that are so incredibly important. You know, in girls security, we try to relate those very individualized personal experiences to what national security and international security should and could be so that girls, especially who tend to shy away from the space thinking that it's just about the military or law enforcement, and then they look at law enforcement and military and just see men being able to see that their personal experiences have corollaries at communal, societal, national, and global, and maybe even intergalactic levels someday. So by being able to see that, it gives them more confidence to be in the conversation. And that's really the key to what we do in girl security to facilitate that confidence for them. But the flip side of it, of course, is the default system. And the more the default institutions, the default thinking realizes that its default is a viewpoint not shared by more than 50% of human beings. Just because this is what's been recorded over millennia doesn't mean it was the only thing experienced over millennia, because we know, of course, that 99% of our history books 
come from male writing over the years. It's only recently that we're even getting close to having 25% of history books being written by women. But you can't go back and rewrite history either. So there it is. Again, not an accusation. It's just, please, please just be honest and recognize that the default was experienced by maybe 50% of the world. And I think in any other scenario, in any other science, in any other, you know, if like if it was your healthcare at stake, you would want to know what the other 50 to 51 to 52% think. So, you know, a lot of it is on the institutions of national security, the institutions of government, really, and law to recognize that. And to also understand when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility programming and efforts, you can't, as I have said before, you can't just take a bag of chocolate chips and smush them into a sugar cookie and expect this to be a chocolate chip cookie. It doesn't work that way. It has to be a chocolate chip cookie from the very beginning. I mean, ingredients are different, recipe are different, you know. So, You have to be willing, what I mean by that is the institutions, the organization, the culture of the building or the group you're in, all of that has to be able to say, okay, we are bringing in a diverse population with different perspectives, different experiences. Let's start at the very beginning. You know, what's our mission? Why is this our mission? (laughs) Let's start at the very beginning, you know, the first step of the recipe. Get the views from the ground up, almost like a zero-based review. Because I think otherwise you're asking a lot of people to assimilate to a default. They don't necessarily agree is correct. That's just an uphill battle. Nobody's going to be able to contribute really well in that environment, nor are you going to see the success that you expected from having diversity contribution that way. So I think it takes both of those things working at the same time. It's probably easier for us to create a lot of girl securities and help especially young people expect something different and really value their own unique perspectives and perceptions and experiences and realize that they can and should contribute it to this national security discussions. But I think it's a lot harder to get the institutions to recognize that they live in a default that may not be accurate. Well, sure. Especially, you know, at the times when some of these three-letter organizations were created. In your words, we have the default covered. So it's bringing other folks into the conversation, especially when it comes to that institutional change. But around the time that we're at September 11th and sort of, you know, remembering that time, you wrote the first report warning of Osama bin Laden in the early 90s and years before 9-11. And you were also one of the six women in the CIA's band of sister that tracked down bin Laden. Tell us what was going through your mind during that time and sort of reflecting on it in today's world. You know, when 9-11 occurred, it was... It was, it really felt, I think, for everybody an inevitability. And at the time, I mean, that's a, that's a really sad thing to say, but we'd been saying it was coming. So it wasn't a surprise to any of us in CTC that day. And nor was it really even a question as to who did it. Now we still did everything that we needed to do to investigate all possible culprits. Don't get me wrong. That's a responsibility you always bear. It just wasn't a surprise to any of us. You know, and I also think if you really understand and look at history, you know that it is so often the case that people 
they don't need proof just once. They need it multiple times before they believe something is actually happening. Something that they don't want to see is happening. And I think it was just very hard in the post Cold War, you know, the end of the Cold War to think that a group of, you know, a couple hundred people who were not even from the same country, probably didn't even speak the same dialect of, of anything and, you know, had very different reasons for hating the United States and others could be that kind of threat that even the Soviet Union hadn't been able to be, you know, the Soviet Union hadn't executed that kind of attack on U.S. soil. So it just, unfortunately, I think takes multiple trauma before people realize what's going on. And and I, I think what's really important, you know, in saying that is that that is also the case now, right? There are things that analysts are out there warning about, some of which unfortunately going to be accurate and also traumatic. But right now we just can't, our brains just can't accept that tomorrow is going to be vastly different from today. So we just keep waiting for more and more proof of it. And then when that happens, everybody's like, why didn't we warn about that? Why didn't we know this was going to happen? I, I guarantee you it's going to happen again. I think it's playing out already. I guess that's my biggest takeaway from 9-11 that might be a little bit different from what most people would comment as 9-11. Well, I, I do appreciate you sharing that with us. I think it is important to have it serve as a reminder for future threats that could be more imminent than we think. I really appreciate you joining me today, Gina, but I did want to give us space to talk about your book, National Security Mom, and then your second book, book two, America Needs a Timeout. Tell us what you hope the book does for others and any advice you want to offer women that may be interested in intelligence. Thank you. I mean, with, you know, National Security Mom books, I have another one in the works. It's really my observation that as parents, what we are trying to create in terms of our families and the security of our families is not just about keeping your house safe and keeping your family members safe. It's also about the integrity of your family, the love and support that you have for each other, even through tough times, right? If your house burns down, you don't lose the security of your family if you don't lose your family members. You know, if you're still a family and you still love each other, then you still have everything you need to rebuild. And I think of the nation that way too. You know, our national security is not just about border safety, border security, border integrity, transportation, infrastructure security, all those things are, of course, extremely important. But they're not the only things that are important. Those That's our national safety. Our national security rests in the sustainability of our constitution and the integrity of the way we adhere to it, much like your family security rests in how you support each other and remain loyal and committed and supportive of each other. I think, you know, trying to make national security as a concept, something that's more approachable, not just for women, but for everybody. It's, you know, it's because again, even though it's national security, mom, it's really about the parenting analogy and seeing how little actually changes when you go from taking care of toddlers and teenagers to taking care of the entire United States of America. So that's really the reason why I continue to write the National Security Mom books. But also, you know, for women, I do think, again, I think there are certain realities for women and gender minorities that make them more vulnerable from a physical safety side that leave us less protected by our justice system 
you know, leave us experiencing more physical threat and maybe even, you know, and of course, even violence in our lives. You can't equate women being unsafe with saying that we're insecure. Women secure what they believe, what they think, how they love. Everything that matters is still within their power to secure. So I think women have a much more instinctive understanding of the balance between physical safety and resilience of character, strength of person. And I really feel like our national security needs to uh, reflect that better balance. I encourage everyone to go check out National Security Mom and America Needs a Time Out. And then stay tuned for number three. And I'm really looking forward to that, Gina. Thank you again for joining me today. Gina Bennett was a member of the CIA's Senior Analytics Service, and I love her stories of being a mother and how it relates to her career in national security. It it gives me hope and inspiration for my own career just becoming a mom. So for more information or career advice on intelligence, working within the intelligence community or applying to an agency like the CIA, you can visit news.clarencejobs.com. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.